Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary. I am a 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay okay. that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Join us tonight as we discuss Obamacare, a.k.a. the Affordable Care Act, and other health care policy issues with distinguished guests Wendell Potter, author of Deadly Spin, and Rick Unger, political pundit and Forbes.com contributor. And in the Survivor Spotlight tonight, uh, Alma Heishi, young, young adult colon cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer, Online at stupidcancer.org. Thank you, Kenny. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Block Talk Radio Network. We're coming to you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. And hello. Hi. Hi, Annie. Hi, Kenny. Hola. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. I'm uh, excited. Happy belated St. Patty's Day. Yes. What are you so excited about? I'm excited because the OMG Summit is but six weeks away. Oh, boy. I can't wait. I need a vacation. It's crazy. I need a vacation from the OMG summit. <laughs> I need a vacation from 20 degrees out in New York City when it's almost April. Yeah, it's and pretty insane. I'm moving to the West Coast. Right. Well, this weekend was very successful. We hosted our first or our inaugural Northern New Jersey Partnership Conference for young adults called What's Next with the John Thewer Cancer Center, part of Hackensack University Medical Center. Those guys put a lot of work and effort into that conference. They indexed on Google. They put enough effort into that. It was quite amazing. Quite yeah. amazing. About 120 some odd people came. Um, you put on a show. I put. I actually gave a concert. I don't perform that much anymore for audiences live, but they just ha- did uh, sleep clinics. <laughs> Thank you, Kenny. But <laughs> hashtag scribblings. Yes, exactly. But it was really emotional. I, I don't give a lot of live performances anymore, and there were a lot of people there that didn't know I play piano, and we 
had this running gag that I had taken my first lesson the week before and was going to just let the audience hear me play like Claire de Lune or something like that. <laughs> um, and it was great. It was really wonderful. Um, I, I teared up a little bit because I hadn't played in a while. And uh, just, you know, I showed the pictures of my kids or my PowerPoint, and it was awesome. It's really wonderful. Great speakers on nutrition, a lot of clinical trials, genomics, the latest and greatest. Uh, Julie Larson, our fabulous young adult cancer psychotherapist, was there. Uh, gave a rousing um, speech about finding your new normal and making friends and navigating the, the, the crapness of, of, of stupid cancer. Um, uh, wonderful, really wonderful. So kudos to John Thewer for helping us put together something amazing, and the, the staff and the teams and Tara Crawley for being the leader. Wonderful stuff. And then, of course, our marathon. Yes, we had two marathon teams, one in New York City for the half, uh, had a nice showing for that, and, and then we had a couple of people in the LA Marathon, our first time doing anything west of uh, Central Park. <laughs> that, was, that was a lot of fun. How did our team do? Uh, they all finished first. They all finished, yes. They all won. <laughs> They're all winners in our book. Yes. Indeed. Well, I have something interesting to announce uh, at the top of the show here. Um, Cure Media, they make Cure Magazine. They have this uh, amazing contest that they wanted me to just read about uh, honoring a nurse. So if you uh, have a nurse who went above and beyond the call of duty when helping you or a loved one make your cancer journey, uh, if you know somebody that qualifies for that, Cure Magazine wants to hear from you. They're calling it the Extraordinary Healer Award Contest for Oncology Nursing, and they're accepting essay nominations from patients, survivors, and caregivers across the country who want to recognize an extraordinary oncology nurse. Uh, apparently three contest finalists and the nurses they nominate will receive an all-expense-paid trip to Kenny's house. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> to Washington, D.C., to be honored at a special event on April 25th. Um, but hurry, <laughs> act now. Uh, the contest closes on Wednesday, March 27th, which is coming up quickly. Uh, and the website is curetoday.com slash healer award. So this sounds pretty great. I know many, many nurses who would qualify for this. Anna, you even My have. nurse should definitely win. Yes. So that's out there. Again, curetoday.com slash healer award. And we will be posting this on Facebook tomorrow as well. I have actually, yeah. I have more than one nurse who should win because I know one nurse who is the nurse practitioner to my um, surgeon dealt with my mother and talked to her on the phone for three hours in the three days after I was diagnosed. And I was I didn't know this until she told me a couple of days later after I was diagnosed and I was like I can I seriously cannot believe you dealt with her for that long. Right. And she called it hazard pay. <laughs> okay. And uh yeah. Well Kathy Latour was on the show but two weeks ago, who is the editor at large at Cure Magazine, the long term. We we joked that she's like Ellie Evan Handler, mm-hmm. one of the original young adult cancer survivors diagnosed in the eighties. And uh, so she reached out and said, we're doing this amazing thing, mm-hmm. and we're happy to help. We hope uh, they get lots of nominations from the show and from our, our social media. It's a really big deal. And the other big news for today is we announced that uh, Andrew Jenks. Yes. Andrew Jenks of World of Jenks, and we've done numerous shows on this. Uh, Andrew Jenks does an amazing show called World of Jenks, which profiles, at least in Season 2, three extraordinary individuals, one of whom is Kaylin Andrus who is a young adult survivor of Ewing sarcoma dealing with a recurrence right now. Uh, she is an extraordinary, um, eclectic individual, mm-hmm. like a gothic novelist and a writer and, and a blogger. And a fashion and designer. And a fashion designer and just everything else. And she has been one of the people that Andrew Jenks selected. 
Stupid Cancer is proudly featured on one of the episodes this season, I think episode 8 coming up in April. And it, the show has done so much to raise the bar on the young adult cancer movement. It was extraordinary. Um, so we reached out to Andrew and his people and invited him to accept our 2013 Stupid Cancer Social Impact Award for game-changing the young adult cancer movement. And he accepted, and he will be at the OMG Summit in April to I'm accept pumped. this award at the Palms. And it, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So we have Evan Handler and Andrew Jenks coming to the OMG Summit. Both two very interesting characters. And if you didn't need an, an incentive to come in the first place, we right, now have Andrew Jenks because Kenny's there, and that's always a deterrent. Yes. So, but that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Really thrilled about that. He's really awesome. I really enjoyed co-hosting the show with him. And also, I have to admit, I had not seen the show until after he appeared on the show. And uh, what he's done for young adult cancer and bringing awareness and the way he profiled her and showed how she just lives her life, but also the crappy side of being young adult cancer, trying to, she has insurance issues and she's trying to live her life and she's trying to start a career. And unfortunately she's also dealing with oncologists and going to the hospital and getting scans and they're like, well, we see something, we don't know what exactly it is. So, you know, it's a, it's a great show. He does a really he does amazing work. It's phenomenal. It's just great. So happy. And again, it, it just goes back to just to round off the um, the, the young adult cancer movement is really making a big dent in the media now. It's taken several years, but you look yeah. at fifty fifty, and you There's look that at that new show on HBO. The new HBO out. show, Marissa Arcicello Marchetto is cancer vixen. She's going to be played on the HBO series called Cancer Vixen, and. Um, uh, obviously, World of Jenks and the Huffington Post doing an entire yep. section on young adult cancer. Yep, and it, then the movie um, that's coming out on BRCA1. Right, the BRCA1 movie Discovering, coming out. As I think it's called Discovering Annie Parker, yep. mm-hmm. which is funny. And they'll be on the show in June, I think, May yeah, or June, that's, which is a big deal. Yep, it's premiering and it's decoding Annie Parker. It's about the discovery of the BRCA1 gene. It's extraordinary. Yeah, so, it's like, amazing. This is real progress. Yeah. Kenny, your thoughts, if any? I was just going to say that you really enjoyed decoding things, so I feel like this will be a, a, a W for you. Decoding? Decoding Annie Parker. Decoding Matthew Zachary. Yes. All right. Well, it is 810 here on the Stupid Cancer Show, and it is time to introduce our fabulous Survivor Spotlight. Okay. She's going to tell me that we pronounced her name incorrectly, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Alma Heishi was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer at the age of 30, following two to three years of symptoms dismissed. By doctors as irritable bowel syndrome. She's here to share her story with us. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Alma Heishi. Alma, there's an Alma. Hi. Am I am I totally botching your name? Uh, not too bad. Alma Hashi. Hashi. Okay. Okay, we're yeah. close. All right, all right. Annie wins the bet. Yeah, I was almost there. Not well, bad. <laughs> so you were one of the amazing thousands of people who responded to my my awkward Facebook post saying, "Hey, have you been on the show yet?" And mm-hmm. it was such a wonderful outreach that I had surprisingly never thought to do before. We got like 120 people yeah. reaching out and writing in, and it was amazing. At one point, I stopped reading it. I was like, I can't keep reading this. It was like 100 and something <laughs> comments. I was like, I'm done with this. But it was great. It was just another showing of how powerful our, our age group has become in the world of cancer advocacy. So mm-hmm. thank you for your, you know, taking a deep breath and jumping down the rabbit hole with us and um, you know, it is National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. We did a whole show last week on colorectal cancer. 
and it's like it's like the new black for young adults. Like you're part of this elite club now of young adults who are getting colon cancer all of a sudden. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I would, unfortunately, yeah, it's ridiculous and fabulous at the same hmm. time. So, mm-hmm. so you're living your life. You're 29 years old. You keep getting told, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. It's IBS. Have some tums, right? Yes. In this case, it was a reverse age discrimination because. All the doctors, you know, as we always see on TV, get a colonoscopy if you're 50 and over. What they fail to tell us that if you don't have symptoms, if you have symptoms and they keep persisting and nothing else works, um, then they need to, they should push for colonoscopy sooner. They should have done that with me a long time ago when the IBS diet failed me, when I, when the symptoms kept being persistent after that and after I kept cutting foods of my diet and nothing helped and I went to see naturopaths and acupuncturists and everything I was doing nothing seemed to help so they should have probed deeper into it but because I was under this magic age of 50 and there was no family history they didn't think to uh, to do a colonoscopy which ultimately is what discovered my cancer so what what did it take for them to actually start taking you seriously then? What what prompted them to actually say, well, maybe you should actually have a colonoscopy? Well, I switched. I was lucky I got another job and my insurance changed. And as soon as I started new insurance, uh, I went to the primary care doctor and I cried in her office. By this point, uh, the symptoms were occurring a few times a week because I was suffering for two or three years. They would come sporadically, but at this point, it was I knew something was wrong. I never suspected cancer, but I knew I, something is being missed big time. And I cried in her office, and I asked her to please send me to a specialist. So she finally, um, she didn't know me. It was her first time meeting me, but she sent me to a gastrointestinal specialist to listen to my symptoms and finally ordered a colonoscopy. So this is what it takes. I would have asked You have to beg. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you had to beg yeah. for a colonoscopy for the night before test and to get knocked out from anesthesia and for the privilege all that. of having diarrhea for four hours the night before. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so actually, you, I did, that didn't happen to me. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you get the test done, and then they tell you you have ulcers. So yes, um, explain a little bit about you know you have the test done, then what starts happening? Well, I I think. Um, the special, the gastrointestinal doctor, he didn't want to tell me uh, right away what it was. Um, he knew, he told me later, with 99% certainty. One, because I was knocked out and, you know, that anesthesia they give you, I was, my mind wasn't all there when I woke up. And so he just said, there's some ulcers, you'll need surgical removal, but follow up with me in a week. So I, I kind of walked out of there saying, okay. Well, I'm glad they found something because right. then this can resolve, you know, there is something. Now we can look for a solution. But I was a little bit confused. So I just followed his lead. Mm-hmm. During that week period, I Googled ulcer, and I didn't see anything about ulcer being in a colon. So I was like, hmm. But I, I didn't look further than that. Right. And then Dr. when I went Google. back, yes. And when I went back a week later by myself, because I didn't expect nothing more than a you know, just further ulcer discussion. When he dropped the big C word, I just right. knocked off my socks, as you can imagine. Yeah, every, you know, I think we all are, when we all unfortunately hear those words. So when you, it's okay, so you find that then you started to have surgery. 
Mm-hmm. I, everything happened very fast from there. The following day I had a CAT scan, mm-hmm. which showed a small spot on my liver. At that time it was undetermined if it was cancer or not. Um, then I had surgery a few days later, colon resection. And uh, it was a, the tumor was about the size of a peach. It was almost wow. completely obstructing. And, um, and then a month later I started chemotherapy because the pathology showed that it went into my lymph nodes. Right. And then the follow-up PET scan a few months later showed that the spot on the liver changed. That means it responded to chemotherapy, and that means that it, it is, in fact, cancer. Right. So that made me a stage four, and then after that I underwent one liver surgery, followed by some complications and infection, and I was in a short period of time when I thought I was in remission for two months, and then I had another PET scan, and... I already had a re- recurrence. Mm-hmm. So I had another liver surgery, and now I'm going through my second round of treatment. Right. I have to ask, you have the most lovely accent. Where are you from? Oh, I'm originally from Bosnia, Eastern Wow. Europe. Oh. Yes, thank so how you. So you, how long have you been in the country? I've been here since I was 14. Okay. I'm now, I'm now 32, so 18 years almost. That's awesome. So how do you mm-hmm. like our crappy health care system? <laughs> well, you know... It's actually, sometimes I think to myself, maybe this all happened for a reason. If I were not here, if I were in Bosnia, I don't know how far advanced they are in their oncology and colon cancer. There have been a lot of advancement in colon cancer treatments in the last 10 years. I may not be alive if I were there. In, in, in one way, I'm thankful that I'm here, that it, I'm still, they're still hoping for a cure. Right. Um because I was operable, so sometimes I think maybe this all happened for, you know, I'm here at the right country. If I were there, they may not have caught it. They may not have, because the liver surgeries I had were very advanced, and I had to see a top liver guy in, in San Francisco. Not everybody can do it. So, hey, well, this I know is the young adult story. This is how, you know, we like to argue that the young adult story is, is not really special, but it's very different. And here you are, young, your whole life ahead of you, and you have to deal with all of this nonsense. Are you able to comment on, did this affect your employment? Did this affect, uh, you know, any financial burdens with insurance? Uh, Luckily, with employment, I was so blessed because I started a job just a couple of months before my diagnosis. That's what triggered me having this new insurance. And it's the job is somewhat of a government job. So in that sense, I'm protected. Mm-hmm. I have I'm a member of a union. Had I been in a private industry, I would not I would not be I would have been let go a long time ago because FMLA covers you if you're employed for a year or longer. So I have a really good insurance. So in that sense, I'm very lucky. Um, but I've been affected in every other area of my life. Right, because you when imagine. you're when you when you're 27, 28, 29, it's supposed to be a time when you're moving forward, and here you are, mm-hmm. kind of moving backwards a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad yeah. to hear that your so your employer has been good to you. They've been they've been great. They're uh, like top blessing. That's they, extraordinary. And we like and also the, my family and friends. Right, and that was our other question too. I mean, did this affect relationships? Did you lose friends? You know, how have you been able to figure out? How do you talk to people about this? Big time. It's definitely affected all of my relationships. Uh, Friends. Yes, I have lost some friends, some people that I thought were friends. 
And at first it hurt. And now that I look back, it's I, I can't even blame them. It's something that happens. It's natural human reaction. It's, I realize it's not about me, it's about them. They're scared, they don't know what to say, they don't say anything, they disappear. Uh, cancer is not fun. It's hard to make plans with somebody around their treatment. That's right. a big obstacle. But on the other hand, I've made so many new friends, uh, mostly online. Uh, people spread throughout the country, young adults uh, with colon cancer. And they are so supportive. Like one of the best things about this, cancer one thing best things that happened to me is meeting all these wonderful people that i did not know before i never would have had a chance to meet them it doesn't matter like you know where they come from or what political association or what their economic status is one thing we share in common is this cancer and what it has taught us and on some level it's a much deeper bond than even your closest friends and family i'm sure you can understand is a lot of your family here locally, or do you still have your parents here? I still have here? family in Bosnia, but my my uh, my sister and my parents are here, and yes, they're very supportive too. It's been hard on everybody because cancer doesn't run in my family, and we've we've all had to learn how to deal with it, um, teach each other. I had to teach them as as time goes on, what helps, what doesn't, and and so on. Well, you're clearly and, a risk taker because you live in the Bay Area. <laughs> yes, it's wonderful. <laughs> Did you was that where you landed when you when you were 14 years old or you you've yes. always been there? Yes, uh I, I've always been here and that was just another luck lucky card I had because my sister was she came here first as exchange student and she was just um placed here in Bay Area. As you know, as when you're exchange student you don't have a a choice of where you, you sometimes they place you in North Dakota or something. So she was lucky, and <laughs> they put her here, and they brought me here, and I love it here. Well, if you were be, if you were put in North Dakota, you would have increased the Bosnian population by a thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So nothing against the North Dakotans. No, nothing against. We love North Dakota. We can't North do Dakota. The cold exactly. Very well. <laughs> so, how did you find the young adult cancer world? Well, when I was after I was diagnosed, at first it was it, it was a very lonely world because everywhere I looked in, in the treatment room in my oncologist's office, there were all these older people. I'm the youngest, especially in my cancer. They're all older, so I thought, oh, how am I getting old man's disease? And, and through googling, um, I was trying to find support groups, and um, at that time, funding. Um, because we were under financial stress at the time. My husband lost his job, and I found Chris for Life, a foundation, and some other ones. And through them, I started being connected to people, and that's when that's how I kind of got acquainted into this young adult world. And I would I, I don't know what I would do without it, honestly, and without all the support. And um, how has it been with your husband as your caretaker? As oh, one he's of your wonderful. caretakers. He's wonderful. Actually, we were, uh, when I was diagnosed, we were only dating. We were not wow. even engaged. But he's a saint. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he is. We were not even engaged. We were dating less than a year. Wow. And the first words out of his mouth when I said diagnosis, he said, we'll get, we'll, we'll get through this. We'll do this. It was no hesitation. And a, a month later, he proposed to me. And Wow. We got married through my treatment. 
that's but again, that's the young adult story. Right. Like this is so wonderful to hear, and the 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 uh, dialogue around the caregiver is so often unspoken. And mm-hmm. what it must, you know, what's it like to be a boyfriend of a young woman with colon cancer when you're also in that age group? It, when you know, like I said, it's an old person's disease, and but what, what we're seeing, I mean, uh, Mike from Chris for Life and the Colon Cancer Alliance. They are actually mm-hmm. adopting young adult programs now, which I find fascinating. So it's extraordinary that you're able to find them. And it's unfortunate you had to go through Dr. Google to do it, but I hope you kind of skimmed over all the scary crap that's on Google. Yes. Well, you know, sometimes you get pulled into it, but, you know, I get back to my senses. Right. And try to follow just the uplifting stories. Great. That's really wonderful. I'm really happy. This is a, a, yeah. just a great story to, to, to have out there for the young cancer world. I guess a, another question we can always ask you is, you know, you have the right to be a mother. You have the right to fertility options. And were you was that disclosed to you that this might impact you? Yes. It kind of came late in the game because after my surgery and – uh, I saw a few oncologists before I decided on which one I wanted. <laughs> I, at least I have the luxury of having good insurance, and I, I kind of fired one oncologist because I didn't think it would work out. So, as Sometimes I was, you gotta do what you gotta do, and you can't really care about feelings. <laughs> right. I, I just had, to, as I was kind of forming my team, because I knew this was this was going to be my team for a while. Well, I didn't know how long it was going to be. If I knew that, it would be a whole other story. Um, by the time it came to that, it was already time to start treatment, but I did end up seeing a fertility specialist in UCSF, and we went over the numbers, what my specific chemo would do. Um, it's a, it's um, aggressive, not as aggressive as estrogen-dependent chemos, such as breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and so on, but it does have a, it does have a chance of um, making me infertile. Mm-hmm. Um, as, so... At that time, he gave me the option I could preserve my eggs. It was too expensive. I couldn't afford it. And also, I was running out of time. Mm-hmm. And also, honestly, I don't know if I want kids. Right. I just, I never, I never was a person who said I must have kids. I didn't say I don't. I just don't know. At this point, I have to, first of all, be five-year cancer-free and be alive in those five years. And if I make it in five years, then revisit that idea if I want kids. Yeah, but, I- I kind of went through the same thing because of my chemotherapy, but I decided not to do it because I also didn't really like the idea of being pumped up full of hormones either. Mm-hmm, I wasn't exactly. really into all that, but because then you're already moody as it is from having cancer. The last thing yeah. you need is to be pumped up full of estrogen to yeah. kind of see how far your mood swings can go. But, yeah, I don't, you know, I can't really blame you. And you know what my doctor always tells me is you don't have to physically give birth to the child for to have a family. That's how I feel, too, and I kind of leave it up to faith. If it's meant to be, and if I desire so in the future, and if it's meant to be, it will happen one way or another. You're right. But for now, I'm not worrying about it. Right now, I'm just, you know, thinking about making it a day at a time. You're living. That's what it's all about. Exactly. Exactly. you are an exemplary woman. I congratulate you on your inaugural um, uh, inauguration into the stupid cancer world. Which is the club no one wants to belong to, but uh, right. apparently once you hear your family. So mm, thank you. So uh, thanks for hitting me up on Facebook. It's extraordinary to know you, and now we know we have a new friend in the Bay Area. Thank you for having me so much, man. So so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm going to say Alma Heishi. Is that right? 
Hashi. Uh-huh. Hashi. All right, yeah. I'm going to get it wrong every time, but thank you for your tolerance <laughs> and forgiveness. I'm a guy. No problem. All right, good, God, bless, God bless. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, well, uh, let's hit up the news Hello, here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Kenny, what's going on? Well, Matthew, you can head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something will be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. A whole bunch of meetups coming up, heading on over to Sacramento for one, then Denver, then Gainesville, and then finally St. Louis. St. Louis, huh? St. Louis, Missouri. That's pretty awesome. All right, we talked about it at the top of the show. It is our big feature here, the OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is happening April 25, 6, 7, 8 at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's April 25, 6, 7, 8. Registration is live. It is open. We have tons of people going to be there. Uh, OMG2013.org. That's OMG2013.org. Breaking news. We have an online store. Check out the Stupid <laughs> Cancer Store at stupidcancerstore.org. And, and we're sold out because... We have we a whole had, bunch we had of an stuff. overwhelmingly successful campaign. We did. We, we did. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally, the Stupid Cancer Forums have almost 5,000 members. This is a premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.org today. Sign up with one click through Facebook, and that is your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. News. Alrighty, well, it is time to introduce our star guests tonight. I'm so happy to have these two guys in the studio. Annie, why don't you take uh, take Rick? Rick Unger is uh, Rick Unger is Forbes' official token lefty. As he says, however, writing from left of center should not be confused with writing from the left, as I often annoy progressives just as much as I upset conservative thinkers. That is quite the biography. Quite the biography. And this off anybody. <laughs> Wendell Potter, who is most famous for keynoting at the OMG Cancer Sub in Las Vegas uh, last year, <laughs> it's on his Wikipedia, <laughs> is a senior analyst at the Center for Public Integrity, a former health insurance industry communications executive, and author of the book Deadly Spin. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Wendell Potter and Rick Unger. Gentlemen. Welcome. Hey, gang. Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, Wendell. Good to talk to you again, Matthew. Oh, it's phenomenal Hello, to talk Rick. to you. Matt, who's that, Wendell Potter? Yeah, I've yeah. heard of him. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> he, like, yeah. famous? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think hey, I Wendell. Know that Rick guy, too. <laughs> How nice. are you, buddy? Great. Good to talk to you. So, yeah. Wendell, you owe me an apology. Only because you went in front of Congress and issued an apology, the least you can yeah. do is apologize to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. I need to do better, don't I? <laughs> exactly. So you guys are clearly senior thought leaders on what's wrong with this what, country. What do you mean by senior? Wendell's old. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> intellectually senior, <laughs> not gerontologically yeah. senior. Not age-wise, gravitas. Actually, the truth is right. I'm older than Wendell. Grav- we're, we're talking about your gravitas. It's gravitas. Right? gravitas. Thought leaders with a discount. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, obviously this is the, an ongoing conversation that's been around as long as it's been around since the 70s. And, you know, this is a brand new generation of people that are dealing with chronic diseases that just didn't even affect us many, many years ago. And there's so much to know and to understand and, and to wrap your head around. It's impossible to know. And on top of the fact that the system is typically working against you on purpose for profit motives. 
So that's a lot in one breath. But I, I want to just turn it over to Wendell because you are your your story, everything that that you've become, was inspired by the passing of a young adult cancer survivor. That's right, uh, a young seventeen-year-old uh, girl in Los Angeles who was waiting for a liver transplant, uh, and uh, she had leukemia. Uh, but uh, she uh, was insured, or her parents were insured through a policy uh, at Cigna, where I used to work, and a medical director at Cigna decided he didn't think. Uh, that uh, it would be effective for nettling Sarkeesian. And uh, that's just despite the fact that uh, her surgeons in UCLA Medical Center uh, were, were confident that she would survive the, the transplant and, and live for years beyond. Um, but uh, uh, they didn't have the last word. Uh, the last word was a medical director 2,500 miles away in Pittsburgh who said uh, he was not going to authorize coverage for it. Um, time passed. Uh, the family appealed the decision. Cigna eventually agreed to pay for it, but so much time had passed that Nedeline got sicker and sicker, and she passed away just a few hours after Cigna said it would pay for it. And I just didn't have it in me after Nedeline died to continue working for an industry that uh, that does that. Uh, and I'd handled a lot of what we call high-profile cases over the years, and I became uh, so much aware of what insurance companies do to make a profit, and that was just one person there have been many, undoubtedly, who have died over the years uh, because of uh, the need to meet Wall Street's profit expectations. So I walked away. And kudos to you for doing that. And you wrote this extraordinary book called um, – well, hang on. I just dropped it. I should know what it is. Deadly Spin. No, no, I know what it's called. I like literally started looking away because I have ADD. (laughs) Deadly Spin, which, again, is, is your story. It's the exposure of all this. And how was that received? Uh, it was real well received. It sold well, and uh, it actually uh, uh, won an award. Uh, it was uh, won the uh, Nation Institute's Ridenauer Award as the uh, book of the social significance in 2011. Uh, so I was very grateful, and I was grateful to have had a chance to uh, to write the book and to uh, uh, to for it to, to win award an award like that was uh, was, was even more gratifying. And it's uh, it's it's uh, been used in. in uh, in classrooms around the country, in all kinds of classrooms, medical schools, journalism schools, PR schools, uh, uh, law schools. It's been, uh, it's been a, a well-received book. You know, it's, I'm, I'm going to jump in. It's interesting how the world turns. Uh, the, the story that Wendell was talking about that led him down the path that he's on, at the time that happened, I was living in Los Angeles, and it was a very, very significant local story. We were all following it. Uh, I actually had some friends who knew the family, and we were all certain that in the at the end of the day, this was going to work out, that there had been so much heat put on this story that there's no way that this insurance company was going to let this young girl die. And I remember uh, when we heard that they had approved it, only to find out, uh, I think I woke up the next morning and read it, that the, the young woman had, had passed away within hours. The impact it had on me, I mean, this was before I had gotten involved uh, as a journalist in writing about healthcare policy. It had a huge impact on me. Little, I, the name Wendell Potter at that time certainly meant nothing to me. Uh, it didn't mean much to the number of people who now know him, and certainly I didn't know Wendell and would go on to become friends. It had a remarkable impact. So it's, it's shocking how one decision right. uh, 
can lead to so much. And, and you know, there, there's no such thing as good news in, in a young woman like that dying. Right. Who maybe didn't have to die. But, you know, at least there are people like Wendell, uh, hopefully other journalists such as myself who were influenced by this and who maybe, just maybe, saved a few lives because of it. Yep, indeed, indeed. And, and uh, Rick, you have the... So it may be the disadvantageous advantage of actually having had cancer. Yeah, but you know what? I was over 40, so I don't know if I qualify to be a member of this group. I'm feeling very left out. I well, no, I mean, we, we joke that we're not special, but we're different. But the issues are the, the psychological issues, the issues of fear and can, anxiety. Can you have really stupid cancer if you're over 40? You could have super yeah. stupid cancer. Super stupid. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. That works for me. Your cancer gets forgetful at that. <laughs> Your cancer so, doesn't have to worry about rotting ovaries. Listen, but, I, mean, I, I am the master of playing the cancer card. I want you to know. We'll so. have to give them one. We'll have to give you a cancer card. We actually oh, have okay. them. Yeah, I, I, I got really, really good at using the cancer card. It got me out of more things. It was... In many ways, the best time of my life. So I just brief, so then briefly, you're, you're, I don't, I'm not going to dig down that rabbit hole there. But so so briefly, tell us your story. I what's the story? You get you get it. It happens, right? What you have? As I say, it's part of growing up. I had a, a, a an unusual uh, type of non lymphoma uh, or non Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, and you know, listen for me. It didn't go so badly. I have to tell you, I I, I was when I was going through chemo. I was watching what was happening to the people around me, and I don't know if it was because I was still relatively young. I was, uh, I think, 47. At, no, actually, I was older than that. I was 50-something. Um, I don't know if it was because I was relatively young or just the nature of my genetics, but while chemotherapy was not the way I'd recommend spending your summer vacation, it was not nearly as bad for me as it was for the people who I was meeting and talking to in that room. So, you know, I consider myself hugely lucky in that sense. It just wasn't as awful as I know it was you know, for other people. You know, my oncologist told me was that older white men, not to say you're old, but white men. Oh, excuse me, I have to go now. Not I've insulted the guest. Rick Unger, everybody. Wendell, it's all yours, bud. <laughs> white men tolerate chemotherapy the best. Is that true? That is, that's what my oncologist said by demographic. African-American women tolerate it the worst. Interesting. And white men do the best. And the older the men are, the, the better they typically handle it. Well, not I, not handle it, but I guess just, they feel. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you, your body reacts. Exactly. I have to say, the women who I met, uh, and, you know, you, because you're on a schedule, you tend to see the same people over and yeah. over. Um, they were having a much, much harder time of it than I was. I mean, I really... I, I, I spent so much of my time in do, during those hours in chemo trying to tell jokes to the people around me because I could just see how horrible it was for them. Yeah. Um, well, a lot but, of them also have the mommy thing at home, too. Yeah. That's yeah. what I met a lot when I was in chemotherapy, all these women who – I met one woman who had eight kids. So she was, like, getting chemo. Eight kids? Yeah. So she, she, Is that a dugger? Can you she imagine? Was, she was she is Orthodox, Jewish, so she had a lot of children, but she wasn't – she was younger because – they tend to start their families younger, and she had eight kids at home. Wow, well, imagine kids. going through I mean, I, I know what I felt like in the days, as we all do. Yeah. And she Can was almost hostile. Can you imagine hostilized. having to go home no. and having to deal with that? I couldn't. Like, I could barely handle going home by myself right? and dealing with myself. <laughs> so I can't imagine being responsible right. 
I couldn't be responsible for anything. The only thing I was responsible for was getting myself to my next doctor's appointment. So it's hard enough having my kids, and I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't even have to get. I didn't have to take care of myself. You know, I I was lucky. I'm married and had somebody look after me and drive me there and drive that's me why, home. And mm-hmm. that's why women do are anything stronger I than ask. Men. Yeah, you know, it's true. Yeah. So Wendell, you just got back from Washington. Um, apparently, another person uh, unfortunately passed away because of some. Crappy health policy, correct? That's right. I was, uh, and, and I, I told her story uh, during my my congressional testimony. I was uh, testifying on a House panel uh, that was uh, uh, supposedly being held uh, uh, on the well, the affordability or unaffordability, as the title of the hearing was, of, of, of Obamacare. And I was uh, there to uh, make the case that uh, it actually will benefit most people and make their health insurance uh, much more affordable and available. And that was a big point that I was trying to make, uh, particularly about this, uh, a woman who passed away um, at age 63 uh, unnecessarily because uh, her her family firmly believes that if she had been able to get coverage, uh, uh, she would have gotten better treatment and she might uh, might not have have died last summer. Uh, Leslie Elder was her name, and she... uh, uh, in fact, her whole family actually became a victim when she was initially diagnosed at first with breast cancer. Uh, the insurance company jacked the uh, the premiums up so high. Her husband uh, is a, was a small businessman. He had a, a small auto repair business, but he was trying to do the right thing and, and offer coverage to uh, not only his family, his own family, but to his employers, employees and their families. But the insurance company... Uh, jacked up rates up so high when Leslie got sick that he had no choice, Mr. Elder, uh, uh, but to drop coverage for everybody. He just simply couldn't afford it, nor could the employees uh, afford their share of it. So uh, when they lost their coverage, uh, Leslie essentially became uninsurable. There was no company that was going to be willing to buy sell her a policy. Who was the insurance uh, and, company, Wendell? Uh, I'm told it was Aetna. Aetna. Uh, I like to name and, uh, names. I have yeah. Aetna. Yeah, and uh, uh, so you know, all the, even the big guys uh, do this kind of stuff. Uh, and this, and I've, I've written about it in my column today. What happened uh, was uh, something that's called in the industry. It's referred to in the industry as purging. Uh, when an employee or a worker gets sick, um, then the insurance company will uh, jack those rates up high, and they call it purging because they know that the small business usually will have no alternative but to. Walk away. They just can't afford it, and they uh, and, and they know that that probably there's not much chance any other insurer uh, will, will pick them up. Um, so that's that's a sad story. And you know, I, I so Congress never ceases to amaze me. I shouldn't be surprised at anything that they do. Uh, when I told the story, and I was well received, uh, you know, some of the members of, of the panel were were uh, uh, were understanding and sympathetic. But one particular congresswoman from North Carolina uh, said she felt that I was being disingenuous. That by telling that story, I was making it seem uh, appear that there were a lot of people who were like Leslie Elder. Well, of course that's the case. But some members of Congress, uh, as you could probably imagine, live in some parallel universe. Right. They think the uh, the world is 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 different, and everybody has access to affordable health care. And if they don't, we've got this wonderful safety net that'll take care of everybody. I think I, I think I figured it out. It's her last name start with an F. The well, congresswoman. This particular one, well, let's just say it. Who was it? Was, 
Okay. No, it was Renee Elmer's. Oh, from I was North wrong. Carolina. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, was her. Uh, but there was another congresswoman from Tennessee, uh, uh, Marsha Blackburn, who uh, kind of weighed in with the same kind of comment, which was, you know, really uh, kind of hurtful to me, especially because I was born in North Carolina and raised in Tennessee, and here were these two congresswomen who were who were shooting me down because I was uh, talking about someone who had lost their lives uh, because of the lack of being able to find uh, affordable coverage. What did uh, uh, Congresswoman Blackburn have to say? I'm curious. Uh, she was she was talking about uh, uh, she was reading out this list of of, uh, of employers who she said had written her saying that their rates were going up because of Obamacare, and she wanted to know what I would uh, say to those uh, those employers. And I said, well, I would begin by uh, uh, saying that uh, they were maybe experiencing the same kind of situation that. Uh, Jim Elders had uh, experience, and she cut me off right away. And she said, "You, you've told that story to death. Uh, let's move on to something else." Well, you have to keep Can telling the story that? for things to change. Yeah, yeah. They just don't want to hear stories like that. In fact, neither one of those congresswomen were willing at all to let me uh, describe uh, in in greater detail what happened to um, the elders and why it was relevant to the hearing. They wanted to make sure that they got their points in about how bad Obamacare is and how, again, we've got this uh, this safety net that's there to take care of everybody. We don't need to have a federal program. It's better to have a, the free market work uh, um, as beautifully as it has in the past. What are some of the changes in the health care? Just, you know, to look a little forward, we've, you know, unfortunately these stories are all over the place. We can... For these two people you've told us about, I'm sure there's uh, thousands more. But what are some of the changes that you know people not, might not be as familiar with in the healthcare law that positively affect young, you know, young people, especially people who may have had cancer? What are some changes in the law that are positive looking forward? Well, I'll, I'll begin, and I know uh, Rick can, can weigh in here too. Uh, the the Affordable Care Act will enable a lot of young people to get coverage uh, that they can afford for the first time ever. A lot of young people comprise the largest segment of the uninsured. Uh, and a lot of them will be eligible for Medicaid because they're low income, many of them, or low to moderate income. Others will, many others will be eligible for subsidies. And uh, uh, and so, and many, also many others will be able to, and already are being able to, to stay on their parents' policy. Yeah, let's not forget those that are already getting it. Well, Kenny's, yeah. Kenny, right. Kenny is not a cancer survivor, but Kenny is now... What are you doing here, Kenny? I know. He has to I leave know. now. Who let him in the room? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you, you have... A, he's an example of benefiting from the Affordable Care Act. I did until December when I did turn 26. Right, which is amazing. Yeah. But Ken, Kenny, is a, Kenny was a teenager uh, in high school, and his father had to stick with cancer, so... You're, you're like driving your dad to chemo every day in high yeah, school. That's yeah. my claim to fame. Yeah, claim to fame. Yeah. Um, so, I, all right. So here's a question for both of you. Then, does it? Uh, let's look at Rob Portman. Right, his son was gay, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden now he's a gay sympathizer. <laughs> is it? Is it possible? I mean, to, you don't want to have too much Schadenfreude or, or wish bad things on people. But everyone that works in Congress is fairly well off and probably and has government insurance. Is it possible they could ever be affected by a situation like this that would finally convince them outside of traditional, you know, um, uh, just just uh, you know, uh, Democratic or, or Republican, you know, uh, 
practices or thoughts. It's, it's probably unlikely that a member of Congress is going to find themselves in that place, especially if they're in Congress today. They're going to be in Congress in 2014 where they're not going to be able to be denied anymore right. should right. they get sick. Uh, but yeah. you know what? They may have kids who very well may yeah. experience it, and they'll find out the hard way, you know, with somebody they care about what, what it can be like. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You, you ask a really interesting question because – as you as you pointed out with Senator Portman, for some reason Republicans only seem to get it when the story happens to them. They they lack an empathy gene to put themselves in the place of somebody else. But when it happens to them, the light bulb goes up, which is swell. That's great. I'm glad Senator Portman finally got it. Wish he would have gotten it when it was somebody else's kid. But because of the Affordable Care Act, that light bulb that we would have liked some of them to experience in the future, they're never going to have to. Right. Because they are never going to suffer the way people have suffered not being able to get insurance because of a pre-existing condition. They'll be able to get it. Right. We have um, one of our spokespersons, the 15-year-old out of uh, Reno, Nevada, and uh, her, she's under her mother's insurance. And, and the, the conversation we've always had with her is, you know, you, you – could you be denied affordable health care? Like where, you know, she may not be denied, but it might be too expensive to afford. Mm-hmm. How, how would not that play out? Well, no? the, the, one of the good things, after the 1st of January, insurance companies will no longer be able to turn someone down because of health status. Uh, in other words, the, they can no longer use pre-existing conditions to deny anyone coverage, nor can they charge people more because they've had pre-existing conditions. Uh, so that'll that'll be very very protective for people who who uh, are stricken with cancer, uh, and it's it's going to be one of the most important consumer protections. It uh, uh, it makes a lot of the practices of the insurance industry illegal. They can no longer dump you when you get sick, which has been a, a prevalent practice in the industry for years. And, and just to uh, insert, there victims. also won't be there also won't be caps on the policies. Right, right. life insurance won't use it up. So go ahead, right. Wendell. Exactly. Yeah, the, 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 it's a very, very, a very important point. So, uh, and and the uh, out-of-pocket expenses will be limited as well too. So, when we're talking about coverage, we can't just uh, think that the only costs are the cost of premiums. You have to, uh, you have to take into consideration what your out-of-pocket costs are going to be too. Well, they will also be uh, uh, capped at a certain level, which and all this is very good for consumers. Certainly, obviously, for people who get sick. So, one thing. I've come across, I've met so many people who are young adults who have cancer and, you know, I'm very lucky that I have, you know, private insurance and I didn't particularly have that many problems. I mean, my costs were still ungodly, the costs I had to pay out of pocket for the surgeries and the chemotherapy and the prescriptions and just the chemo drugs. But one thing that I've come across, a friend of mine has stage four breast cancer and she has Medicaid because as a 30-year-old, healthy, I'm a vegan, and I exercise and walk six miles a day and bike all day, and I'm outside, and I live a super healthy lifestyle, she did not expect to have stage 4 cancer. So she has Medicaid. And one of the things that she keeps running into is only she's only covered in her state. And she lives in a small state. She doesn't live, you know, she lives in the Northeast, so she wants to get access to hospitals in New York, in Pennsylvania, potentially, you know, MD Anderson. And these places are, they're not, okay, so in their words, they're not turning her away. They can, they'll see her, but it's going to cost her. And they're telling, they're giving her quotes for $20,000 to come in 
just for a consultation. And even, you know, Sloan Kettering, thank God, will charge her something that's reasonable. But what's so frustrating is she's an hour and a half from one of the best cancer special specialty hospitals in the country, but she has to pay out of pocket because they will not take Medicaid. But everyone takes, not everyone, but the majority of, uh, you know, oncologists and cancer centers take Medicare. And that's what's really frustrating is they're turning away people because of their income levels that they're almost like weeding you out and because you can't afford it. If you, if you know, if you're wealthy, you perhaps would not have Medicaid. But when can we see a system that's more like Medicare? And I know that you say that to Republicans and they like go into anaphylactic shock <laughs> at like the single payer system. But when is that something that's, I wish people could truly understand until they see it happen in front of their face that how this could truly benefit that you can cross state lines that, you know, Medicaid, expanding Medicaid is a step, but it's still not, sorry, I don't mean to like get on my soapbox, but it's not, it's, we're not there yet. And that's what's truly frustrating is you see people who are going through this struggle and all they want to do is live. They're, we're young and we're starting our careers and trying to start our own businesses and this law is supposed to help us, but it's, I just feel like we're not there yet. So we're what, not there what's yet. your opinion on just, so I'm, everything I just yelled. But, you know, what's your opinion yeah. on going towards a single payer system so that Medicaid Inevitable. is? I that's what I, I want. I really want to see the system where it turns into a Medicare system where you're not going to get turned away and that doctors are not going to be fearful for accepting it. I believe we're going to eventually get there. It'll be a few years more. We've got to uh, you know see how the the Affordable Care Act is implemented. And I've said uh, many times that the Affordable Care Act does some very good things, but it's just the, the end of the beginning of reform. Right. And I think that it will, it will uh, what it will do, though, among the, I think the important and good things it will do is uh, get us closer to the time when uh, uh, some kind of a single-payer system will be more likely. Uh, it probably won't be something that necessarily comes out of Congress. Uh, it may start at the state level. Uh, Vermont is, is moving toward a single-payer system, and if it succeeds, I think other states will, will pay pay attention and adopt the same kind of, of program. But even with the Affordable Care Act and the change that it's making on the insurance industry, I don't think that our current our current multi-payer system, our current multi, for-profit multi-payer system, uh, to a large extent, is sustainable the long. So I think it's just almost inevitable that we'll get to a single-payer system at some point. That doesn't it's, mean uh, it's going to be next year. It, it's absolutely inevitable. I, I, as one of the notes, I've written a great deal about this. Look, we're already seeing it. You know, nobody can predict when, but here's what we already know. We know that the medical loss ratio that was built into the Affordable Care Act that requires insurance companies to spend either 80 or 85 percent, depending, when you know what their overhead is, you know how narrow their profit margins are already. Insurance companies make an enormous amount of money, mm -hmm. but they make it on volume. Their profit margins are really very slim. They cannot afford to stay in this business forever with the MLRs. How do we know that it's already happening? Look at what the large insurance companies have been investing in. They're not buying more insurance companies. They're buying companies that, like, like Amerigroup that, that deal in providing services to states to manage their Medicaid programs. Right. They are, they are taking their money and they are divesting it out of 
traditional for-profit insurance into other businesses because they know that it is only a matter of time. Look, the other yeah. thing that we know that you cannot get around, if we were to reduce the age of Medicare, not increase the mm-hmm. age, but reduce it down to 55, it would do wonders for the entire system. You would be taking the sickest people out of the private insurance system, right. thereby lowering the rates for everybody there, and you'd be putting them where they become the healthiest people into the Medicare system, right. which would lower the rates there. So what's the purported yeah. argument against that? The politics of what they call socialism, which ah. is nonsense, but it's politics. Would you agree, Wendell? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's completely that. It's ideology. And uh, we're, you know, some people are just uh, refusing to give up the notion that the free market system can work in health care as well as other sectors of the economy. Uh, there's going to be uh, increasing evidence that it doesn't. But Rick is absolutely right. The profit margins of the insurance industry, uh, the companies will see it shrink even further after the first of the year when some of these other consumer protections kick in. And one of the things I saw that came out today from health officials in the White House is that 71 million Americans who were eligible for at least one free service under the new health care law, such as getting a flu shot or a mammogram, they took advantage of it. And what's frustrating is that when people get a mammogram or they get a flu shot, they are essentially costing the healthcare system less because it's preventative care. Because you're not, if you're getting a flu shot, you're not getting the flu. If you're getting a mammogram, hopefully you're not getting, you know, you're you're getting checked for breast cancer. You know, if you get a mammogram and you have breast cancer, it is what it is. The, it's one of eight women. It's the statistics are ungodly for breast cancer. But let's just say you might be diagnosed at stage one as opposed to stage four. But stage one would cost the system less than stage exactly. four. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's something else we should mention quickly that came out of the White House over the past few days that's fascinating. The trajectory of health care costs to Medicare over the past few years has been really good. It's been very much under control. We don't know if it is because of Obamacare. There's some evidence that might have something to do with it in the early stages. It may be because of the economy being so difficult, people aren't going and spending as much. But here's what's fascinating. If we are able to stay on the same trajectory that we are currently on, instead of the projections that put Medicare at 8% of GDP in the the future, it would only be 4%. Medicare goes from being the biggest threat to to our economy to basically right in line with everything that it should be. So these are things that are happening. And and I have to tell you, I think Obamacare did play a a positive role in that because we're already seeing the recidivism rate. People who check out of the hospital and used to come back within 30 days, that number is falling because hospitals are now starting just a few months ago paying a penalty if they come back. So and, and I think the hospital started reacting to that early. That is going to save a lot of money. So there are parts of this law, if people will give it time, some aren't going to work, some are going to work. Right. One thing I would think you guys would want to talk about, I'd like to hear what Wendell says about this, the cost of, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, are younger people, which is your audience, right. going to be paying higher insurance rates. So older people like me don't have to. My, my, all right, Wendell, you take this. I have a, I have a comment as well. Well, uh, you know, one of the one of the good things for old guys like Rick and me is that uh, uh, the, the insurance companies won't be able to yeah to gouge us as much as they used to. Right. They can't charge us now anymore after the first of the year more than three times as much as anybody else. 
well, that's a good thing. And and, and the uh, critics of the law are saying, well, that just means necessarily that young people are going to have to pay more. That's not true either. That's what I was talking about in, uh, before Congress. Uh, it, it's only true if insurance companies decide to start gouging young people, but they don't necessarily have to increase uh, prices or premiums on young people. The people who will be paying more uh, are those, though, who have been paying good money uh, for junk insurance because junk insurance is priced a little bit lower, a little bit lower at least, than, than, uh, junk, uh, than, than, than insurance that has some value. And junk uh, insurance is not going to be permitted anymore. Right. right. Exactly. It'll go away. That's right. Uh, my two cents are, and, and I mean, I'm 38, so I'm aging out of the young adult group. I think 45 is what the government considers like transition from I young adult to adult. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my, my whole point is I don't mind paying more taxes. I don't make, you know, I'm not in anywhere near the 1%. I don't mind paying more taxes if I know it's serving a public good in as authentically uh, perceptible a way as possible. I'm I don't, not a money hoarder. I don't. I'm not. A, that's just my, my not my philosophy. So I mean, Kenny, how do you feel about this? You're 26. Would you rather see higher income taxes come out of your paycheck for more social good, or would you rather just want to hoard your money and be a one percenter? I've I've always I've always worked. I've always worked full time, and I feel like I've earned the benefits that I had received. Uh, so my argument would be like, get off your ass to people who, obviously, this I is don't think Kenny's answering the question. <laughs> I think Kenny doesn't want to answer because he's afraid of what we're going to say. Kenny's a Republican. <laughs> a Republican. Well, I'll give I'll give my two cents. I'm definitely. Pretty solid middle class. I live in New York City. I pay a ridiculous amount of money to live in an apartment smaller than this radio studio, which is really pathetic. Pathetic for the size of what I live in. And what I would like to see are the so-called one percenters or millionaires or super wealthy pay a fraction more in taxes because I don't feel that I owe the government any more money because I see what my tax bracket is. And even if when I get a raise at work, even if it's like nominal, like a couple of percent, you know, a couple of percent, I'm in a higher tax bracket. And then I end up getting like, what, 30 bucks more a week. When my rent's going up every year, it's like null and void. So I'd like to see the wealthier pay a little bit more. And, and kind of spurring off of that, one of the things that's frustrating is businesses have to now offer employees insurance or they get they are uh, stuck with a penalty or a fine. So, uh, Wendell, I just want to kind of ask you, what do you think about some of these companies? You know, we see a lot of um, franchise owners. I saw, like, a franchise owner from Five Guys come out and say that he's going to have to raise prices or people saying, well, I'm just going to pay the penalty and not offer my workers insurance. They're trying to get around the law in the certain loopholes. ways. Yeah, they're using yeah. these loopholes to avoid giving people coverage. So do you think that those so-called loopholes will somehow be closed so that companies can't get around not offering insurance? Yeah, I think they, I think they will. First of all, they, they will have to offer some coverage if they have 50 employees or, or more. Uh, that's what the law says. Uh, the other thing is we're, we're hearing these, these stories, but they're anecdotes. It doesn't represent necessarily a big trend. Most employers want to do the right thing. I've met a lot of employers over the past few years, and they want to offer coverage 
to their employees. They know that that's a good thing. And it also is still an employee benefit. Uh, they, people, employers offer benefits to attract employees, not because necessarily right. uh, they're, they're altruistic, but it's, a, it, it's something that helps them to attract and keep employees. So I think we will, uh, we'll, hear, we'll continue to hear uh, stories like Five Guys, uh, but I think there'll be more of the exception than the rule. Keep the people. Listen, most of what you're talking about, and mm-hmm. I think you know I've written pretty extensively on this and made some enemies in the fast food world, it's, it's the people who are in a position to lower working hours. So if you yeah. run a Papa mm-hmm. John's Pizza, for example, franchise, you know you can you can take your your workers who are delivering pizzas and cut their hours so that they don't count as full time right. employees under the law. Right. I think it's despicable. I think that yeah. I, I I think it's outrageous that they have no trepidation when it comes to adding five cents to the cost of a pizza because the price of flour goes up. Right. And yet when you have to add fourteen cents, we did the math on it. 14 cents to a pizza to make sure that all of your employees are covered. Well, this is some horrible thing. Guess what? I don't know anybody, and neither do you, who will not pay 14 cents more for a pizza. Right. It is an additional cost. It's the right thing to do. And I tell you what, every time I hear of one of these companies, I write about them. Uh, I wrote about Denny's, and a week later, Denny's retracted what they were planning to do. I've been all over Mr. Schnatter over a Papa John's, and he now says that, no, I never meant it. I'm, I'm not going to do it. Right. And I will continue to write about anybody I hear about because it is despicable. It's wrong. It's, Simple as that. And Wendell makes a really good point is that companies need to see this as a positive. When you offer benefits, you attract talent. You retain talent. You attract the most qualified possible employees to make your business better when you offer em- benefits like this. And one of the things I would hope to get reformed next would possibly be life insurance. Well, I know that uh-huh. that ineligible i know i i'm eligible through my company because i work for a very large company so i'm in a group policy but that's the only way i can get life insurance is through a group policy because a 31 year old who has already had cancer who has a genetic mutation it puts me at higher risk for other cancers and then being at risk for cancer from the treatment that i had so i'm basically at risk to like croak and i don't know the only policy i was eligible for would have cost me twenty five thousand dollars a year and that's what i always hear so hopefully that'll be twenty five thousand and put it aside i know i know exactly i don't buy i don't buy life insurance anymore i don't i don't need it right so yeah so anyway well I feel like I've ranted. <laughs> a lot. I feel like I got a lot of pent-up anger out tonight. Well, Wendell, how's the family? <laughs> Family's good. Good. Talk tomorrow, Rick. Okay. Your mom doing all right? She is. Thanks for asking. Okay. Thank you. She is. Thank you. All right. So let, let's take the next like five or so minutes to wrap the show. But I, is there any positive here? We're, we're I, I, I read something. Actually, I watched Bill Maher last night from the Friday show, and I. I don't describe to 100% of what he says and does, but there was an interesting statistic about going back to the millionaires, like the 1% versus the 0.1%. And, like, there's a new the, – the budgets came out, the Democratic budget, the Republican budget, and the progressive budget that no one ever heard of before. And uh, they ran this, like, survey of 5,000 Americans, and they all voted for the progressive budget, which is, like, neither the Republican or the Democratic one. And it was, like, 71% of Americans agreed that we should tax the super wealthy more and tax the wealthy more. But one of the pundits argued that you could tax the wealthy 100% of their income, and it wouldn't cover even a fraction of the, the debt of this country. Is, is that an argument with health care? You, you want the honest answer What's to the this question answer? that nobody wants to say? 
the Bush tax cuts should have gone away. We should all be paying more taxes. Right. It's ridiculous. It was ridiculous when it was passed. It was ridiculous when it continued uh, despite starting these two wars. It was not sensible policy. And and I got to lay this on President Obama. You know, I know it's difficult politically to tell people that you're going to raise their taxes, but you know what? It was the right thing to do. A lot of the problems that we are having are the direct result of the fact that politicians were not doing what they should have, knowing that we baby boomers were coming. This is why we're in the fix that we're in. Listen, the good news for you guys is that we're going to die, <laughs> right? And when we do, except for me, of course, right. when we do – then this is going to cease being a problem. The baby boomer problem is a temporary strain on, on our budget. We're going to go one of these days, and when we do, those of you coming behind us, there aren't as many of you. Right. So it's not going to be the same issue, but for the moment, to have all these seniors hitting the, these entitlements, everybody should be paying more taxes. That's right. just the reality. Right. Well, Wendell, you may feel differently than that. <laughs> Wendell's going to live forever, I, too. That's right. No, I, I, I do agree. The other thing is that there are some changes that will happen to the Medicare program, uh, aside from the fact that the baby boomers are visiting are the, going to die, yeah. that will help as well. They're going, to be cha- they're going to be paying doctors and hospitals differently, and they won't be getting bonuses from insurance companies to participate in Medicare Advantage. So there are a lot of things that, that, that will be going on. So don't buy into the notion, don't anybody buy into the notion that we have to raise the eligibility age to age 67. We absolutely do not. That's going the wrong direction. It's not necessary. It would be a huge mistake. It right. would make it worse, not better. Right. I mean, there there are things we can do. I mean, I think somebody like myself, Frank, should be paying more for Medicare than I'm going to be charged. Right. But but Wendell's absolutely right. Raising it is counter to every sensible insurance policy. You don't want to take the youngest people out. Right. They're the they're the best money in the pool. <laughs> right. Why would you yeah. take that money out? You should be making it younger, not getting right. Rid of them. Exactly. All right, well, let's end with a, with, with a potentially positive response. Um, the odds that someone will die because of a insurance industry's profit motive policy, is it less likely now than it used to be, or is it about the same when there's really been no change? It's less likely now. It'll become even more or less likely after the first of the year. They'll still be able to figure out ways to deny coverage. They always will as long as they can do it. But... Uh, They'll be less able. They'll, they'll be, there'll be fewer things that they can do to deny coverage. I agree with that with a caution, and the caution is that if too many of these states, for every one of these states, that refuses the expanded Medicaid will impact very negatively on that issue. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, we could do this show every day of the week. For the you got, you got any year. money? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and this is clearly a topic that is not going away anytime soon, and we're really thrilled to. I mean, Wendell, your your presentation was so well received last year, and uh, Thank you. It, it's such a, a hot button issue that this generation is really hungry to understand and take advantage of, and and then hold the system accountable, and take action for change. So thank you for all you've done for us. And Rick, obviously, you are the master of ceremonies here. You know pretty much everything. That I don't. I know everything. <laughs> you can just stop right there, Wendell. You already said I know everything. <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> He's never going to forget that either. <laughs> yeah, he, obviously, he obviously doesn't know me. <laughs> well, Rick Unger and Wendell Potter, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. We'd A love pleasure. to have you back real soon. Thank you. All right, Wendell, take care. Talk to you soon, Wendell. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. So, Rick, was it good for you? 
It was good for me. <laughs> yeah, we're still on. We got to close up. We were still no, on. We're still on. Yeah, yes, it was wonderful for me. Was it good for you? It was lovely. This is a great show. <laughs> We outed Kenny, so that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. Kenny's a Republican. I think it might be this uh, Corona. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, yep. are you allowed to drink and be on the air? Is oh, that, we're not regulated, so okay. there's no FCC okay, here. Okay, no, mom's going to kick the door down. Because I'll turn you in. <laughs> I won't hesitate now that I know your true political leaning. Right. <laughs> operating uh, a radio show under the influence. <laughs> By the way, I want you to know that while we were working so hard, Making this radio program, mm-hmm. Kenny was signing up with me on Lincoln. Yes. Lincoln. Yes. Yeah, he sent me one too. You know, this is what he was doing. I'm expanding my network. That's, that's all. Why, that's why Kenny gets the he's big an opportunist. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Chief Ginger Officer. How can you deny when I'm sitting right next to you? Tomorrow <laughs> you'd be like, who? No, he builds the accountability Maybe I moment. I can cancel him tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our show. Now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, number 259. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Special thanks to our guests, Alma Heishi, Rick Unger, and Wendell Potter. And we are off next Monday, so in two weeks, April 1st, joining us for Gaming and the E-Patient Revolution, as we're joined by Richard Tate, Vice President of Communications and Marketing for Hope Lab, and Sean Schwengui, Vice President of Digital Health at Edelman, founder of SXSH Social Health and, and blog M. Med 2.0. Meg 2.0. Sorry, I need, like, Brain 2.0 to discuss the evolutionary changes in digital health and the rise of empowered patient movement. Survival Spotlight on author and radio host Johnny Aldrich. Joni. Joni. Are you drinking? No. You're drinking, too. It's a contact drunk. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Okay, folks, if you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at iTunes.stupidcancer.org or check out all of the archives online at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Happy Passover. Good night.